An old Indian proverb said that you don't understand someone until you've walked a mile in their moccasins. I think we talk about walking a mile in their shoes, right? And um, the idea is that we don't understand what somebody is going through until we've gone through it ourselves. You know, it's one thing for us to go and uh, turn on the television and see people who are going through hard times. Um, Probably um, you all have seen on the news some sort of a tragedy. I know I've seen, I've seen uh, floods and hurricanes and tornadoes all from the comfort of my home. On the, I've seen it on the screen, but there's nothing like seeing it in person. Um, I remember I was one time I was in the Philippines, and I'd heard about hurricanes, I'd heard about typhoons, and I had never been through one, though. And this time I was in the Philippines, and they said this typhoon was coming, and it was coming, we were hoping that we were going to be gone by the time it arrived, because, uh, well, you know, it could complicate things a bit. And where I was in the Philippines, we had, I had a group of young people there with me, and we were staying up in this town, this more or less village up in the mountains, and the largest house, they, they rented the largest house in the town for us to stay in, but it wasn't a very big house. And there... And their uh, way of looking at things, it was a pretty big house. But when we got there, I think there was 20-something of us, we got there and we looked at the house and the family had moved out so that we could stay there for this week. And, and there was like two rooms, you know, and um, then the kitchen. And so we thought, well, what are we going to do? So we decided that we would put the girls in the house, um, chivalrous as we were, And um, the men would stay outside. And we actually got some bamboo, and we went into the town. We got some tarps, and we built a little lean-to shelter next to the house, which was actually very roomy. It was quite a bit larger. It had walls, well, tarp walls that went around it. And and, um, this would be our our headquarters for the next few weeks while we were there. And um, so there we were, and we were hearing the news that the typhoon was coming. Um, But we were going to be leaving on Sunday. The typhoon was scheduled to come Saturday. Well, Saturday we had Sabbath. We had our our final meetings. We had a big baptism. We we met with our churches. We had a a wonderful day and still no rain, still no winds. So that all sounded good. Saturday night we went to bed. It was going to, we're going to have to leave at like six or seven o'clock in the morning to go down to the city to catch our flight. And um, about midnight, it came. Now, I'll never forget the sound of that rain on that tarp. It was deafening. It was pounding. And, um, but everything was going fine. We fell asleep to the sound of the rain pounding on the tarp until somehow during the night, um, part of the tarp began to collect a puddle, a pool. Now, when that happens, it starts to stretch, and when that happens, it gets a deeper pool. And um, all went well until about 2 o'clock in the morning, when that pool reached its fullest capacity, or the bamboo reached its greatest uh, strength, and all of a sudden, a piece of bamboo snapped, and that puddle that had been gaining, getting bigger and bigger on the tarp suddenly emptied right onto my bed. (laughs) 
Now, you would think the Philippines would be warm. That was cold water, let me tell you. It was cold water. And um, I was very thankful that I happened to be laying on my, with my, on my stomach because when it landed on, if it landed on my face, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, all that water coming down. And um, I was awake. Everyone was awake. We started trying to get our stuff out of the water, trying to get, um, I remember I, um, one, of our, one of our team members, George, he's a, he's a Filipino guy that can fix everything. And so we looked to find him, and he had gone, he had, he had abandoned his tent and had gone into the van to sleep. And with the, with the thunder and the lightning and the rain and the wind rocking the van, my pounding on the doors on the glass did nothing to awaken him. And uh, finally, finally I roused him and we, we, uh, we tried to dry out and, and that was the end of our sleep for that night. Uh, but you don't understand torrential downpour. You don't understand a typhoon or a hurricane until you've been through one until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Now, our scripture today, in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, it tells us here that inasmuch then as the children, we back up a few verses, inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, um, he himself likewise shared in the same. Uh, Dwayne, you think you could work on the focus there a little bit? Um, it's a little bit, a little bit hard to read here from my perspective, at least. Um, Let's see if we can get the other way. Right there, uh, just past it. That's, that might be a little easier to read, okay? Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who have the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Is this good news about Jesus? He came to break the power of the devil, to give us liberty, to release us, to give us freedom. And it says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like unto his what? His brethren. Now, who are his brethren? You remember when Jesus' literal brothers and sisters or half-siblings and his mother came to him to try to convince him to stop being so radical and start being more, uh, you know, complicit with the religious leaders of the day? And and Jesus said, who are my mother and my brethren? He who does the will of my Father in heaven, they are my my mother, they are my brethren, right? So here the Bible is referring to Jesus as our brother. Now this is an amazing thought. This is an amazing thought that the Son of God, God, the Creator God, would come and come, become a part of the human family so that we can consider Him our older brother. I want to tell you one thing. There are several things that distinguish Christianity from other, uh, other worldviews. One thing that distinguishes Christianity is that Christianity teaches salvation by grace instead of by gr- salvation by works. Every other religion teaches a salvation that comes by what we do. Salvation by, by grace through faith is the hallmark of Christianity. But there's something else. There's something else. Christianity teaches that God became one of us. Now, we've spent some time looking at Jesus as the Son of God, what that means and how, how God is, he, he is the Creator God. I believe He's the Creator God. But... but we cannot forget that not only was Jesus God, He was also human. He became, he became a 
a human being, a part of our family, like our older brother. In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. What is Paul trying to say here in Hebrews chapter 2? He's trying to make an argument. The argument is, goes something like this. In order for Jesus to really be able to help us, He had to come and be like us so that he could understand us. In order for him to represent us before the heavenly throne, he has to be one of us. In order to give us aid in our tempting times, in our trials, in our difficulties, in our our hardships in life, in our pain and our suffering that we go through, Jesus had to experience that too in order that he might be able to help those who are tempted. Today we're talking about Jesus, our older brother. How closely did Jesus identify with fallen humanity? How closely did he, he, did he come to understand um, who we are? The incarnation of Christ is the mystery of all mysteries, and this is uh, written by, by one of my favorite authors saying the incarnation of Christ is the mystery of all mysteries. The Bible even speaks of it as a mystery. I don't think, however, that means we shouldn't understand it. Now, I, I, have, I realize, though, there are some things we won't completely understand. We'll never, for example, be able to completely understand how Jesus could be 100% God and 100% man. We can't understand that. We can't understand why He would choose to condescend to such a level that He would become one of us. But I will say this, what the Bible says about that condescension, we can believe. What the Bible teaches, we can teach. Um, So, I want to stay very close to Scripture here without trying to split too many theological hairs, but we are going to be talking about theological issues today. We're going to be talking about Jesus and how close He came to be a part of the human family. How close did He come to us? Let's start with our Bible study in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we remember we've looked at this passage previously in this series. John chapter 1, we're going to look at how Jesus... Um, became incarnate. We start in verse 1, and we'll just take that uh, review. Uh, John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what does it say? The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. That's the Word. Now, if we skip down to verse 14, there's an amazing, amazing uh, statement made here. We can't really fully comprehend it, but we're going to try to at least believe it. It says in verse 14, the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In order for God to show us His character, because remember, the great controversy between Christ and Satan, between good and evil, the great controversy is a controversy over the character of God. Is God a God of love? Can He be just and merciful and fair all at the same time? Is His government based upon fair principles, or is His law unholy and unjust and unfair? And so there's a great controversy going on between the law of God and and the character of God and the accusations that the enemy of God has brought against Him. And in order for God to demonstrate His character, in order for God to say, I'm not selfish, I am not self-seeking like the enemy is, like Satan is, Lucifer, full of self, God Himself would come and demonstrate a character of selflessness. 
That's an amazing story. But that's what it says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? So that we could behold His character, His glory. Glory is a code word in the Bible for character. Um, but we all, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. What's it talking about? It's talking about His character, right? We are changed uh, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's talking about our hearts becoming more like Jesus as we spend time looking at God's character. So Jesus came as a representation of the Father's character, of His Father's glory. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time, the Father, but only the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. So Jesus came as a revelation of God's character. And Jesus came to show us what the, what the truth is like, how to live a life of truth. The Word became flesh. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is it talking about when it says the Word became flesh? Does that mean He became a human? Does it just mean He became a human? Now, there's a number of different ways that Jesus could have become human. But I want us to see in the Bible, in the New Testament, I want us to see that the word flesh does not just mean he came with, with the bones and tendons and muscles and hair follicles. He, he came with something more, in fact, that he identifies in a way that he is able to identify with us. Let's look at how the word flesh is used in the New Testament. And um, I don't want to go beyond what the Bible says, but I want to understand what the Bible says. Amen. And so we want to see what 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. Let's look at how this word flesh is used here in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. And, um, and when, you're, when you're there, please say amen. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us, we know that he suffered for us, right? How do we assume that he suffered for us? When did Jesus suffer for us? At the cross, okay. He suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Now, if the flesh simply means our, our, our physical body, a human body, then so far we have no contradictions because it simply says that Jesus suffered for us in the flesh. Now, I believe that Jesus suffered for us in the flesh. He was nailed to a cross. That was a painful experience, right? And so this would be a, a true statement to make at this point with that understanding of the word flesh. But notice the next phrase, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he who has suffered, how? In the flesh has what? Ceased from sin. Now, have you ever heard of a medieval practice, believers practiced, Christians practiced? of torturing their bodies, self-flagellation. The reason they did these things is because the Bible says that's how we become holy. He that has suffered in the flesh has what? Ceased from sin. So in other words, if my only understanding of flesh is my physical body, I would have to agree that in order to be holy, I have to torment my physical body. There must be more to this idea of flesh, right? For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased 
from sin. Let's look at some other passage and see if it becomes more clear. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24. Galatians 5 and verse 24. We're going to see what the Bible says about the flesh. The, uh, the, uh, the, if we back up a few verses here in verse 19, we're going to see a number of things. Now it says, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. That's not a very, very uh, church-friendly list, is it? That's not, a very, that's not a very good list of things that we want. These are the works of the flesh, it says. Well, we know human beings do these things. It says... Um, the, uh, which I told you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, that the, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, ge- goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So there's a contrast here between the works of the what? Works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit. And the works of the Spirit are bad, uh, the works of the flesh are bad things, the works of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit are good things. And notice what it says here in verse 24, it says, those who are Christ's have crucified the what? Flesh with its passions and desires. Now this is how Paul is using the word flesh. He's not talking specifically about our corpus body, our, our physical, you know, our, our nail follicles and our, 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 our teeth and our eyeballs. He's not talking about those things. He's talking about the, the, the fallen nature that we have, the desires that we have that need to be crucified. I want you to understand, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. That does not mean that we afflict physical pain to our body. I was reading here recently about a, um, an individual who, I think it's on, on Good Friday every year, I think he's done it for like 20 years, he's literally crucified. It's not in this country, it's in another country where, where, where the... Where the, um, where the re- practice or observance of Good Friday is more culturally important and the predominant religion. But the, he's literally for like 24 years had nails driven through his arms. And when I read his testimony, he said, you know, I feel so close to God from doing these things. And I just have to say, well, I can understand, I guess, a little bit how they came to this looking at these passages. But it's not how I think God intended us to understand these passages. Those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin, not because they've been crucified literally. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections of lust, not being nailed to a wooden cross, but by saying, I choose, making a choice. Instead of following those things that their, their fallen nature tells them to do, they have now, through the process of new birth, chosen to be born again and to follow the things of the Spirit. Now, let's, let's, let's just notice. I want, I, before you accept what I have to say, I want you to just look at some other Bible verses that will teach us the same thing. So those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with the passions and, and the desires. Uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, looking back a few verses. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And um, this is what Paul says in, earlier in his letter to the to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, literally or spiritually. 
spiritually. He's not talking about a literal crucifixion. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and the life, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. In other words, there's an experience that you and I should have of crucifixion. There's, a, there's an experience that you and I should have of, of suffering in the flesh. And it's not self-flagellation. It's not being nailed to a cross. It's having the experience of the old man dying, being crucified, and the new man, Jesus Christ, being on the throne of our hearts, the throne of our lives. We are not only to call Jesus our Savior, but we're to call Him our Lord as well. Romans chapter 8 is one of those passages that makes this abundantly clear. Look with me in Romans chapter 8. We won't take the time to to look in Romans chapter 7 at that passage. We've, we've spent some time here in Romans already together. But in Romans chapter 8, we're just going to start in verse 1. And I want you to see the contrast that Paul draws between living after the flesh and living after the Spirit. Verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who, walk, who do not walk according to the what? flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that was weak through the flesh. Let me just stop here. I have to, I have to sort of explain how I understand this, and you can study it on your own. But I understand that the law only tells us that we're sinners. The law can never give us the experience of victory over our weaknesses. Do you understand that? The law condemns us. It cannot save us. But the law, for, the, um, for what the law could not do, verse 3, and that was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the, what does it say? Likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How I understand this passage, and I want to be very clear here today as I speak on this. I want to be very clear. I do not believe that Jesus, in every instance, in every aspect, um, had the exact same experience that you and I had have. Jesus never participated in sin. Is that clear? Jesus never himself lived selfishly. He never partook of sin. He never cultivated habits of sin like you and I have cultivated. There are some differences, some very distinct differences. But what I see the Bible here saying is that Jesus, in order to show us that there's no excuse for selfish living, He came and became one of us like us in our own nature, and He became uh, over an overcomer so that he could make us overcomers in, 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 in our experiences today. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin con- condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now notice, go, go on down. And it says in verse 9, For you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, Verse 10, and if Christ is in you, the body, the flesh, is dead because of sin. Remember that crucifixion part? But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit which dwells in you. I want you to understand something very clearly. I want you to understand that in my mind, Christianity is no good if it does nothing that self-help books cannot do. If your religion has nothing miraculous about it, it's not worth its salt. Religion ought to be a miracle. Jesus Christ came to perform a miracle, and the miracle that He is comparing the, uh, this to, the miracle that happens in our life that Paul is comparing this to, is the miracle of Jesus being raised from the dead. Is that a miracle? The Spirit of God, the power of God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and Paul says that same power ought to be experienced in your life. It's a miracle, friends. Oh, I need that miracle. I need that miracle. If I, Chester Clark, am going to be saved at last, it's not because I've been able to do anything right. It's going to be only because of a miracle. And oh, I need that miracle on a daily basis. That crucifixion of my old man and that resurrection of, of a new man with the power of the resurrection of Christ in my life. And oh, if we have that experience, Paul is arguing, we won't be living after the flesh, but we'll be walking after the Spirit. Therefore, brethren, based upon what he's just said, verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You don't have to follow what our human nature tells us we ought to do, because Jesus came, and in the flesh He overcame sin so that He could make us overcomers as well, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, there it is again, crucified with Christ, crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts, if through the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. Cross-reference right here. Cross-reference a very important verse in Romans chapter 8. Um, let's not go to John chapter, uh, 1 John yet. Cross-reference in your Bibles, John chapter 1 and verse 12. I love this passage. Compare these two passages together. John chap, uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse, um, verse, verse 5, 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Does that sound difficult, to be led by the Spirit of God, to have crucified the flesh? It does. But John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, To as many as received Him, talking about Jesus, to as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become, but what does it say? The sons of God. So the, it's through the power of Jesus, through receiving Him as our Savior, through the power of Jesus Christ, that we can have the experience of being led by the Spirit of God and be called the sons of God. No offense, ladies. You're going to be sons too. And in this sense, in this sense, in the Hebrew mind, the sons are heirs. And we all become heirs of the kingdom of God. Jesus becomes our elder brother. Now, Somehow here I got ahead of myself. So we're going to go back here to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. 1 John chapter 4 
and verses 1 through 3. Let's just see what it says here. Um, 1 John chapter 4. You see, when Jesus came and was here on earth, people had a real hard time believing he was really God. I mean, is not this the carpenter's son? We know him. We know his sisters and his brothers, right? That's not what they said. Can Jesus really be God? After Jesus left, the question is, was Jesus really man? Was Jesus really man? Now they believe he's God, but was he really man? And so in, uh, in, in 1 John chapter 4, there's a prophecy that is made here, and it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. And he, there's a colon there. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have already heard was coming and which is now already in the world. By the way, I have, I have, uh, I've heard of, of Christians today who are looking for the Antichrist in the future. John here makes the argument that the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. In fact, Paul... Paul would make a similar argument. He said the, the mystery of iniquity is already at work. The seeds of the great Christian apostasy was already making inroads into the Christian church. And Paul said, I know as soon as I'm gone, as soon as the apostles are gone, grievous wolves are going to enter into the flock. There will be among, uh, some will arise among you who will seek to, to bring disciples after themselves. So there's a spirit of Antichrist. Some people ask, okay, well, we know what you believe is the Antichrist, Chester. So how does the Antichrist teach that Jesus did not come in the flesh? In fact, it absolutely does. In fact, if you look at the teachings of the Christian church in the Middle Ages, you will find that much of its falsehood stems by a misunderstanding of Jesus' coming and his incarnation. There, there are very few who would have said that Jesus did not become a human. But there are very many who would say Jesus did not become a human like us. Now let's look at it. The, uh, the, the, the theology of the original sin. Now, I want to be very clear here. Sometimes when we start talking about theology, different things mean different things to different people. There are definitions of the original sin that I would believe. Um, Jesus, uh, the Bible teaches us that Adam sinned and we all have a fallen human nature because of Adam's sin. But when I say original sin here, the way Augustine defined it, he defined it not only as a propensity or a weakness that we inherit from Adam, but a guilt. In other words, we all were in Adam and we all are guilty of committing Adam's sin. That is the teaching that Augustine developed. Augustine of Hippo, the great theologian in the, in the uh, early church, <clears throat> later early church, this in the 6th century. And um, this, is a, this is a teaching that influenced church doctrine to a great degree. And by the way, it also influenced the Protestants. Um, to a great degree also. Both Luther and Calvin were largely influenced by, by um, Augustine and his writings. The guilt of Adam, we all inherit. Um, and so because of that, their argument is, Jesus could not have been born into the human race as we are born into the human race. Now, we please make it very clear in your mind, I'm not saying he was born exactly. He was the, he, Mary was born... Uh, it was a virgin birth. That's something that we haven't um, in our history. And number two, it's conceived by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus from the very beginning was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
I think the closest I can give an illustration, and, and some of this becomes mysterious, but the closest I can illustrate is Jesus was born as we are born again. He was born with the Holy Spirit. Did Jesus have an advantage in the fight against evil over a human being who is unconverted? Absolutely. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. But does Jesus have an advantage that we can't have if we are filled with the Holy Spirit and born again? Then the answer becomes no. Jesus actually came and was born. But the doctrine of Augustine required some additional theology. And this is what it required. Not only was Jesus born of the Holy Spirit, so his God side would have been perfect, but in order for him to be born in humanity and not be a sinner himself, guilty of Adam's sin and needing a Savior to die for him, just by virtue of his being born, he somehow had to have some sort of a disassociation from the genealogy ahead of him. He had to be spared the inheritance that you and I receive. And so there was a new teaching developed called the Immaculate Conception. Have you ever heard of that? What is the Immaculate Conception? The Immaculate Conception is that not only was Jesus born sinless and without a human nature like we have, Mary was first by some miracle born as a superhuman being, not a sinner. She was a holy person. She was spared the genetics that you and I have. Now, this is what the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, and um, this is actually in, in a um, papal teaching from 1854, Pius IX, and um, when, when the teaching of Mary was, was re explicitly restated by the church, the most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, not Jesus' conception, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. That's the immaculate conception. You understand? Now, the immaculate conception led to something else in the church. It led to the idea that uh, Mary was sort of a, a uh, co-redeemer of the world. Um, Mary worship or Mary, Mariology became a part of the church because they said this Mary was a miraculous human being. Um, now, I don't believe that. I believe Mary was, was, was chosen by God. She must have been a special human being, but she wasn't born different than the other children in her neighborhood. She wasn't born with different genetics. She didn't come to insulate Jesus from the flesh. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus came and became incarnate in the flesh. So not only did the, the guilt of Adam, this concept of original sin, lead to the Immaculate Conception, it lay, led to Mary worship. Um, his, uh, let, let me read with you a little, a little more from Pius IX in his word, The Infallible God, in 1854. Let all the children of the Catholic Church who are so very dear to us hear these words of ours. With a, and the children of the Catholic Church are who, by the way? It's the Protestants, who have sort of rebellious children. But with a still more ardent 
of zeal for piety, religion, and love, let them continue to venerate, invoke, and pray to the most blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, conceived without original sin. Let them fly with utter confidence to this sweet Mother of mercy and grace in all dangers, difficulties, needs, doubts, and fears. Under her guidance, under her patronage, under her kindness and protection, nothing is to be feared, nothing is hopeless. Because while bearing toward us a truly motherly affection and having in her care the work of our salvation, she is solicitous about the whole human race. And since she has been appointed by God to be the queen of heaven and earth and is exalted above all the choirs of angels and saints, even stands at the right hand of her only begotten son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, she presents her petitions in a most efficacious manner. When she asks, she obtains. Her pleas can never be unheard. Now, it all came about because of an attempt to isolate Jesus from humanity. Jesus didn't quite reach all the way to where we were. He needed Mary to make those last, that last link to mankind. And this is, this is the result of this teaching. By the way, this concept of us being born guilty is what resulted in the practice of infant baptism. Because it was believed that by baptizing the infants, you could absolve that original sin from Adam and um, they, could, they could be saved uh, from that even while they were not um, yet able to make a decision. This teaching also brought about a human priesthood because a Jesus who is not like us cannot fully represent us. There needed to be holy men, mediators. By the way, we could add to that saints and others to pray to who could go between us and Jesus. Mary's there, yes, but we needed others. We needed people who could, who could come between us and God and, and fill in that missing link between us and heaven. Now, these, these are teachings that I believe are false teachings as a result of a false understanding of who Jesus is. And finally, we come to the conclusion, based upon the idea that that uh, Jesus was different than us and did not become like us, the life that Jesus lived is not necessarily the life that we can live. In other words, Christians are just forgiven, not perfect. I believe that. But we don't need to worry so much about sin in our lives. God's example doesn't give us a miraculous change of heart. We can just live the way we're going to live and expect Jesus to just cover our sins. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand that this all stems from a misunderstanding of the flesh? 1 John chapter 4 said this, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which he said was already in the world. In fact, I believe, I believe that Jesus did come in the flesh. I believe that Jesus did come to give us an example. In fact, we read this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, for to this were you called, you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us a what? An example that you should follow in his steps. Now, it wouldn't be very fair to leave us an example that we couldn't follow, right? It wouldn't be very fair if he said, this is how you do it, but, oh, I forgot, you can't do it. That wouldn't be very fair at all. In fact, Jesus gave us an example, thankfully, and I want to be very clear here. I fall short of that example. And I'm thankful, I'm thankful that God's grace covers us when we are surrendered to Him. Are we clear about that? 
I'm not trying to say we should go home and be downhearted because I'm not exactly perfectly like Jesus yet and I've already called myself a Christian. No, there's a growing experience and while we're growing, God's grace covers our, our weaknesses and our sins. I, I praise God that we can, we can be covered in His perfect robe of righteousness. That's the only way I'm going to be saved. But I want you to know that He doesn't want us to still wallow in our mire. He wants to raise us up to walk in heavenly places with Him. He wants us to live as He lived. He wants us to walk in His example. And He wants to do something miraculous in your life and in my life to make me the Christian that, that He wants me to be. Jesus gave us an example that we should walk in His steps. How did He do that? He did it by demonstrating that the flesh can be kept in check by the Spirit of God. And we don't have to follow the flesh. We can live by a miracle with the Spirit of God dictating, leading our hearts and lives. Those who are of Christ have crucified the flesh with the, with the, with the affections and lusts. And so we find God has a a, has given us an example. Why become our older brother? Number one, to connect us fallen humanity with the throne of God. Number two, to be able to understand our experience and needs, to be our mediator and priest. Number three, to give us an example of how we ought to live connected with the Father, even in our fallen human nature. The idea I want you to see today is not that, oh, we ought to be perfect, we ought to do better, I have, I have failed. The idea I want you to see today is how close to you Jesus has come in order to save you. I want you to understand that Jesus came to where we were, to where we are, in order to save us. He did not become a sinner, no, except through my sin. He bore my sin, but He did become one of us, our older brother, and He gave us, He gives us an example. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, the story of J uh, Jacob fleeing from his brother Esau. And um, he has, by treachery, he has deceived his father into giving him the birthright. And now his, his uh, older brother is, is angry. And um, he is running for his life. And Genesis chapter eight, 28 in verse 10. It says, uh, Jacob went over uh, out from Beersheba and went down toward Haran. Verse 11, so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Doesn't sound like a very comfortable night's rest to me. His head is, has a pillow, a stone for a pillow. And it says in verse 12, he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. What does this mean? What is God trying to tell Jacob? Downhearted and discouraged and exiled from his own home and his own family because of his mistakes and because of his sins. He's, he's out in the middle of nowhere with nowhere to stay. He's, his head is laying on a rock, and God gives him a dream, and there's this ladder whose base is on the earth, right next to him, I imagine, and it ascends all the way to heaven. And the, the, the voice stood, uh, or the Lord stood above it, verse 13, and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to your descendants." 
Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And Jacob awoke. Basically, God is saying, look, to Jacob, to Jacob the deceiver, to Jacob the one who is, who is, who is, who has done wrong, who's discouraged, no doubt, and, and he must have been repentant in his heart. God is saying to Jacob on that night, look, I am going to bless you. I'm going to still use you. I still love you. I still care about you. Do we need that sometimes? When we are in our difficult circumstances, maybe even we've been in the wrong. Do we need a God who says, I love you even when you're in the wrong? I need that kind of a God. Do we need a God who says, I am not here, removed from you. There is a connection between heaven and earth. There's a connection between me and you. Over there in the middle of, of uh, 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 near Haran, uh, uh, out of sight of Beersheba, between those two towns, out there in the middle of nowhere with just a rock for a pillow, heaven is still connected with you, Jacob. You may feel like you've done too many bad things. I still have a plan for you. I still have a purpose for you. And friends, how is it that heaven is connected with Jacob's today? How is it that those angels of God were ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder? We read about it in John chapter 1 and verse 51. John chapter 1 and verse 51, Jesus uses this dream to, and, to, and He explains to us what it means. John chapter 1 and verse 51, the last verses of John, the first chapter. John chapter 1, and we'll begin reading with verse 51. It says, And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon a ladder. What does it say? Upon the Son of Man. You see, in that ladder, Jacob's ladder that he dreamed that night, that connected him with heaven, was a symbol, a representative. It was a representation of Jesus. Jesus would be the one who would connect heaven and earth. It was through Jesus, a connection between humanity and divinity, that the angels of God would ascend and descend. All of our blessings come through that connection with the throne of God. I love the way it's said in um, the book Desire of Ages, page 24, by His humanity Christ touched humanity. By His divinity He lays hold upon the throne of God. As the Son of Man He gave us an example of obedience. As the Son of God He gives us power to obey. There's only one, one way that could happen, and that's if Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus actually connected heaven with earth. By His humanity, Christ touched humanity. By His divinity, He lays hold upon the throne of God. It's through Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God, that we can have access to the power of omnipotence. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, seeing then that we have such a great high priest who is passed into the through the heavens, Jesus the Son of Man, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Those are, that's a double negative. You realize that, right? We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. 
who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you thankful that Jesus became like unto his brethren? Are you thankful that he, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us? Are you thankful that Jesus overcame sin in the flesh so that we can have the righteousness of the law fulfilled in us? I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful that we have a God, a, 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 an older brother who is our representative in the heavenly places. One last passage I want to share with you. The elder brother of our race is by the eternal throne. He looks upon every soul who is turning his face toward him as the Savior. He knows by experience what are the weaknesses of humanity, what are our wants, and where lies the strength of our temptations. For he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He is watching over you, trembling child of God. Are you tempted? He will deliver. Are you weak? He will strengthen. Are you ignorant? He will enlighten. Are you wounded? He will heal. Thankful for that, older brother? Father in heaven, today we just thank you that you didn't just look down from heaven and, and describe the misery here on this earth, but you sent your Son, the Creator God, to become flesh, to condemn sin in the flesh, to live a life of complete and total surrender to His Father that we might have an example of how we can live. Lord, we thank you that through His life, through His stripes, we are healed. Through His life, through His righteousness, is our only, our only uh, title to heaven. Lord, we thank You that we don't have to go through Mary or saints or even human priests, but we can go directly to Jesus. We can tell Him our wants, our joys, our sorrows. We can confess our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Oh, Lord... Thank you for coming so close to us. Thank you for, for forever being our older brother, someone that we can relate to. Help us, I pray, to have a relationship with you. Help us. Help us to depend upon you. Help us to receive you into our hearts so that we can have that miraculous power that we might be able to be the sons of God, led by the Spirit of God. Help us to have that experience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.